it's so great to see so many of you here with us today. Uh, and welcome to Global Inquirer's Spring 2020 live episode. Um, the Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast, and each week we bring you stories from across, across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross, and today we have a panel with us to discuss the significance of tax havens, namely how they keep the wealthy, well, wealthy. Uh, they will also discuss the significance of 2016's Panama Papers, which shed light on the process of hiding funds overseas. And as they go along, uh, and if something about their narrative grabs you, hold on to that thought and please bring it up during our Q&A at the end. And if you're watching via Facebook, you can also comment a question and we'll try to get to that at the end as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to following along with their discussion and conclusions. We truly have an amazing panel here with us tonight. It is my pleasure to introduce our researchers who I've looked up to throughout my entire time at the Global Inquirer and our highly distinguished guests who will help us unpack uh, this complex topic. On our left, we have Anna von Spakovsky, a global security and justice major. In addition to her vast contributions to the Global Inquirer podcast, she is also vice president of the University of Virginia's International Relations Organization. And on your right here, we have Balthazar Marin, also a fourth year foreign affairs major with a minor in public policy. And many of you may recognize him as my predecessor as the Global Inquirer's host. And moving on to our distinguished guests, we are incredibly happy to have here with us tonight, Professor Ruth Mason, uh, Edwin S. Cohen, distinguished professor of law and taxation here at the University of Virginia's Law School. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Joseph Thorndike, a tax historian and writer for Tax Analysis, the preeminent tax journal in the United States. I'd like to thank the panel for participating in what is sure to be a riveting discussion about skirting the law, a historic leak, and hiding away vast riches. Thank you. Well. Professor Mason, uh, Dr. Thorndike, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it really is a pleasure and an honor for all of us. As Anna mentioned, we, as Emma mentioned, the Panama Papers play a central role in our discussion tonight. Before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, Anna, can you give us a brief overview of what that all means? Yeah, absolutely. So. Our story starts on April 3rd, 2016, when over 120 news organizations simultaneously posted articles about the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca. So this law firm is one of the world's top creators of shell companies, which are corporate structures that <coughs> clients can use to hide their assets. Um, they incorporate them in tax havens, such as the British Virgin Islands, um, and then they can move money through different jurisdictions to hide where it's coming from. Now, someone at this law firm had leaked 11.5 million documents, so that's 2.6 terabytes of data, to a German newspaper. And then they gave it to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Over the course of a year, 400 journalists all across the world investigated these documents and eventually came out with what is known as the Panama Papers. Um, so this isn't necessarily new information in that Mossack Fonseca had actually been fined before for similar practices, but it was unprecedented in its scale. So for context, um, the WikiLeaks um, or the WikiLeaks leak in 2010 
um, is probably well known to a lot of you. And if the data released in that leak was equivalent to the population of San Francisco, the data released in this leak would be equivalent to the population of India. So that kind of gives you a sense of its scale. Um, the data includes emails, financial spreadsheets, passports, corporate records that all date back to 1977. So it really gave an unprecedented look into how they operate. So what exactly did they find? Um, as I was reading through this, one of the things that kind of jumped out to me was um, their use of intermediaries. So a lot of international banks would actually contract um, the firm. So these are banks like HSBC, Deutsche Bank, huge banks that you've all heard of. Um, and having offshore accounts isn't necessarily illegal, um, but because they can be used to hide the ownership of assets, firms are required to abide by certain due diligence standards so that they know who their clients are. That seems pretty logical to all of us, I would say. Um, but the way they operated, they actually didn't know who a lot of their clients were. So the way that Mossack Finesca worked was they would operate through these intermediaries. So lawyers, accountants, bankers, and they would basically make these intermediaries follow these due diligence standards, while at the same time the intermediaries were making the law firm apply by these due diligence standards. So at the end of the day, when these leaks came out, you get frantic emails between the law firm and between these intermediaries trying to figure out who actually owns these shell companies, and Mossack Fernesca, for the most part, didn't know who their clients were. So, for example, um, two months after the documents leaked, Mossack Fernesca couldn't name 70% of the 28,500 active companies that they had created in the British Virgin Islands. So they didn't know who their clients were. And the issue with this is then you get people that are involved in criminal activity, money laundering, tax evasion, that can slip through and use Mossack Fernesca to hide their assets. So in the end, 33 individuals and companies who were blacklisted by the US for things like narcotics trafficking and aiding in terrorism were clients of Mossack Fernesca. But what was even more shocking to me was they weren't just involved in these sort of lies of omission type schemes, but they actually proactively offered better ways to hide money even when they knew who their clients were, even when they'd been outed as people that say were involved in an investment scheme in South Africa. When the firm was under scrutiny by law enforcement, by international agencies, they would actively destroy and backdate records. So one email exchange in 2007 showed that backdating records was so common that they would offer $8 for every month that they would backdate the record. And they offered that as a normal thing for their clients. Um, another interesting case study actually happened in Nevada, which is one of the top 10 tax havens that they utilized, interestingly enough. Um, a crony of a former president of Argentina had used a branch of Mossack Fernesca to create 123 different companies to hide money that he had siphoned from government contracts. And the U.S. District Court of Las Vegas subpoenaed Mossack Fernesca to get details about this information, but they claimed that this branch wasn't affiliated with them at all. They sent people to destroy and take paper records. They tried to wipe all of their computers, 
and they actually were preparing for the branch manager to lie if she was asked to testify under oath and say that she was operating a company that wasn't involved with Mossack Fernasca at all. So that's just a few examples of the way that they operated. Um, they had many, many more schemes, um, but those are just a few of them. And then I think what a lot of people here are interested in probably is the fallout of the Panama Papers um, because this was a worldwide reaction. Um, there were links to 12 current and former heads of state and 60 relatives and associates of these heads of state. So there were protests in a lot of the countries where politicians were named. You can imagine some of the usual suspects were a part of this. Um, the firm helped Russian state banks and people close to Putin hide assets. Um, the papers also linked eight current and former members of China's Politburo, as well as Xi Jinping's brother-in-law. But there were also cases completely, completely different from this. So you had people that were hiding assets from mining in the Congo. You had um, even stolen money from one of UK's most famous bank heists. You had spouses that were trying to hide assets from each other in divorces. Um, my, I guess, favorite case for this was actually a family in New York who owned a painting that someone claims was looted from his grandfather, his Jewish grandfather, from the Nazis and was asking for it back. And the family created a shell company so they could claim that the painting was not owned by them. So it really runs the gambit um, <laughs> of people and, and all the crazy things that they were trying to do. Um, so the list goes on. You can look up all of these really crazy cases. Um, one of the protests that were going on was actually in Iceland, the prime minister it turns out, um, had owned an offshore company that held millions of dollars in bonds in three Icelandic banks that he had been negotiating with during the 2008 financial crisis. So while this isn't technically illegal, people saw it as pretty immoral and he actually resigned because of that. So the law firm itself, interestingly enough, did not close its doors immediately. It actually dug in deeper, which I think speaks to the industry as a whole. Um, they offered to change the names of their client shell companies. They changed the names of their branches worldwide. Um, they offered special deals and slashed their prices. Um, but eventually, it was all too much for them. So a year later, they did um, close for good. Um, and investigations are still ongoing. Um, as a result of this, countries have instituted over 150 different inquiries and investigations. But of course, we're still seeing the impact um, four years later. The US has indicted four people, two of which have now pled guilty. Um, but again, we, we're still seeing things evolve. Um, and I wanna give it over to our experts to tell us a little bit more about the context of these papers and then also um, their impact. As, as someone with no background in taxes, the scale and the complicity of these intermediaries and these banks was really, really shocking to me. Um, but of course, this isn't ne necessarily a new phenomenon. So Professor Mason and Dr. Thorndike, what was your reaction when this story broke in 2016? I mean, were you surprised? So by the time 2016 rolled around, we were all ready aware. This was not the first leak. So if you want to go to the first leak, we have to go back to 2008 with the US prosecution of UBS, the Swiss bank. Um, so Anna highlighted 
more the role of the lawyers in the law firm. And you know, th there's an earlier story that highlights the role of the bankers. So the way that Americans use offshore accounts to uh, evade their US tax is trivial. All you need to do is have a foreign bank account and then not declare the income earned in that account. That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. You don't need a shell company. You just need to lie on your tax return. Okay. So you had all of these Swiss bank accounts, right? The storied Swiss bank account. And the problem from the US perspective is the United States cannot secure the information. It doesn't know about those accounts. It doesn't know how much income is earned. So if the taxpayer is willing to lie, that's it. Um, so the question was, you know, can we or how can we get this information? And the person who was, the single person who was probably most helpful on this was a man named Bradley Birkenfeld, who was himself a Swiss banker, he's a US citizen working in Switzerland uh, to help wealthy Americans hide their money. And, you know, at some point, uh, he started feeling like he sh maybe shouldn't be doing this anymore. Now, why he decided that the job that he previously liked he no longer liked is a question you can, you know, you get one answer if you read his book, right? Uh, but uh, one possible answer to that question is, you know, uh, or one, one possibility is that uh, his UBS denied him his bonus. Um, and then ultimately UBS did pay him his bonus, but uh, Birkenfeld decided he was still angry. Okay. So he brought all of this information about how the Swiss bankers were helping Americans to avoid their taxes, and he brought it all to the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. And this led to a prosecution of UBS. Um, specifically a prosecution of UBS Switzerland for the illegal practice of banking in the United States. And it led to a deferred prosecution agreement where UBS agreed to pay the United States government $780 million. Uh, and UBS had to sort of not admit to criminal activity, but admit to having engaged in certain practices, including helping Americans find their, uh, hide their funds. And all kind of, you can go online and read the deferred prosecution agreement. There's lots of cloak and dagger stuff in there. They taught their clients how to smuggle diamonds and tubes of toothpaste to get them out of the United States. They told their bankers to lie to US customs officials about why they were coming into the United States. They told their bankers don't log calls on the database with your US customers. There's lots and lots of evidence that they were fully aware, right, uh, that what they were doing was incompatible with US law, okay? <laughs> Um, so as part of the deferred prosecution agreement, they had to agree that they would no longer illegally bank in the United States, so that in, instead of UBS Switzerland running an illegal banking operation in the United States, UBS US was a regulated entity by the United States would uh, conduct banking activities in the United States. Um, so Birkenfeld, ultimately ended up being prosecuted by the United States for his participation in helping Americans hide their funds. 
So he ended up being sentenced to 40 months in prison by the Justice, you know, the Justice Department prosecuted him. But the Department of the Treasury was really glad for his help. So Treasury awarded him the largest ever whistleblower payment in US history, $104 million, <laughs> which was a percentage of the funds recovered. Okay? So now I know you're doing that math, right? <laughs> <laughs> what is the daily payment uh, for, for each day that Bradley Birkenfeld spent in prison? Um, but that, the prosecution of UBS led to more prosecutions uh, of Swiss banks and led to more requests by the United States for information and ultimately led to a law commonly called FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which directly regulates foreign banks. It's a law passed by the United States that directs foreign banks that they must report on US account holders, accounts in these foreign banks. Now, you might ask, how can the United States regulate foreign banks? Aren't those banks already regulated by the countries in which they reside? The answer is yes, and this turned out to be a big problem. The way the US regulated extraterritorially these banks is to say, hey, you give me the information or we're going to assess a withholding tax. On every US source dividend or interest payment made to your bank, we're going to take 30%. You want to avoid that fee? You'll tell us about our account holders. This created a real problem, right? Because Switzerland has bank secrecy. So the Swiss banks were subject to this requirement by the US that they reveal the US account holders, but simultaneously they were subject to a requirement under Swiss law that they not reveal the identity of the US uh, or any banking information about the US account holders. So this ended up being a diplomatic dispute that was resolved when uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton went to Switzerland and they agreed that a certain number of names would be released. Not all of the account holders, but a subset. So then the US said, listen, we're going to get all these names. We're going to get all these accounts, maybe yours. So come in, <laughs> admit what you did, pay a fine and some penalties, and we won't prosecute you. Okay. So through this deferred prosecution agreement, and then this amnesty, and then finally FATCA, which is supposed to reveal the accounts going forward. These are all the different strategies the US took to try to get to these accounts. But obviously not perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> because then in 2016, we get the Panama Papers. I think it is interesting to know of the $104 million, <laughs> the US government decided to take the taxes out for Birkenfield. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to let him uh, declare that himself, <laughs> uh, which is important to note. But I did have the pleasure of picking up his book. It is a bit of a whirlwind. I kind of recommend it. He is, he's a bit of a character. And it seems as if throughout the book, he's trying to boil it down to kind of a moral obligation that he had. And he spends a lot of the time uh, in the book trying to defend what he did. Um, 
he's also extremely angry at the DOJ. He says, quote, the DOJ reached out for my treasure trove with one slimy hand and slapped cuffs on with the other. He talks a lot about revenge. And as professionals functioning in the tax realm, how do you feel about what ultimately happened to him? On one hand, he was rewarded all the money. On the other hand, he did go to jail. Is this a fair punishment? Does it balance out morally? Ooh, I, well, I should say that, <laughs> So my publication named him Man of the Year <laughs> for the year uh, that he that he uh, made his uh, disclosures. Um, I I think that's a that's a good question. Um, there is a I, I think the problem is that his motives are are suspect, right? Um, but I think trying to assess the his, I, I think we should try to probably set aside his motives. <laughs> Um, and, and just try to look at, at whether what he did is, uh, whether we should, be, we should applaud what he did uh, in and of itself. Is it, can we, can we be happy about, that, about leaks like that and feel like the, the ends justify the means? Or, or is that sort of compromise of, of, uh, of privacy, is that, is, that, uh, is that too much? Is it, does it push too far? And I, I'd be interested to know actually what you think about that. Ruth, um, it's not, it's not um, unprecedented. It's not even particularly new. Um, the tax system has relied on that kind of whistleblowing for 100 years. Um, and because certain pieces of information are unknowable to the tax collector, um, unless it is disclosed to them in some way. Uh, certain, you know, as, you know, I'm a historian, so we, the, the tax man has gotten better about knowing what's up in our financial lives over the last hundred years. We've gotten, they've gotten more and more sophisticated. Uh, but certain pieces of, of our, uh, certain elements of our financial lives are hidden even now. And especially uh, globalization has made it easier and easier to hide uh, parts of our financial lives, especially if you're rich. So the question you know, from the beginning with the income tax, when the income tax was new, they relied on, on whistleblowers on, uh, to, to like, get a window into what people were up to, and we, and we rely even now. And, and you can still do that. You can, you know, the, the Treasury still relies on that. So I, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. I, I do think it's morally fraught. It doesn't sit well with a lot of people, uh, and it especially doesn't sit well because these people are rewarded for uh, ratting people out. Uh, I, I mean, I, I definitely take the point and I see that both sides of this issue. Um, I think that whistleblower protections are really important, right? So there's a, you know, there, excuse me, we could separate this into two questions. Should whistleblowers be protected and then should they be rewarded? Um, I think the first is a much easier question, right? So whistleblowers should be protected. We had some, not in the United States, but some leaks in Europe. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the PwC uh, leaks where there was a, uh, an, an employee inside PwC that leaked a bunch of client records. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there were threats of prosecution of the, of the whistleblower. And so I think that there should be protection from that. That's a much harder case to say, you know, should the person then be able to cash in? Um, you could look at it uh, from the perspective that Joe was, was does this person deserve this? But you could also look at it from an incentive perspective, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, Birkenfeld presumably had in mind that he would make a whistleblower claim, and likewise, so do many others. So, you know, this is information without the bounty, right? Uh, we might have less information. Mm -hmm. 
So you said that we've kind of relied on whistleblowers. Um, and I had mentioned earlier, you know, that Mossack Fernesca had been fined in the past and had been under scrutiny in the past. So it almost sort of feels like we're, we're operating like someone, someone described it as whack-a-mole, where you're, where you're, you know, getting kind of closing one loophole, um, one financial weak point, and then, you know, people kind of move to another weak point. So is that just inevitable? Is that, is that the nature of the system? Or, or do you think that's something that, that can change? That's the nature of the tax law to some degree, right? I mean, it, it, there's no such thing as a perfectly crafted, airtight tax law. Um, the reason tax lawyers are highly compensated is because they take a set of rules and find creative ways around those rules. I mean, they're, and they're, it's important to make the distinction here between finding creative and legal ways around a set of rules and hiding money overseas, which are you know, completely different things, really. And politically, they're often not seen as different things, and people can be outraged about that legal tax avoidance, and it, it can be politically every bit as powerful, but they're really quite different. Um, and, and a lot of the examples that we're talking about here are tax evasion, flat out tax evasion, it's illegal, you go to jail. Uh, whereas tax avoidance is typically maybe it may end up being illegal if you didn't do it well, uh, but you don't typically go to jail for it. You end up paying fines and penalties or whatever else. Uh, but I, I think that the, you have to expect that uh, it is, that tax is a, is a game of whack-a-mole. Um, and even tax evasion, to some extent, people will continue to find new ways to hide money. Um, I think we've gotten pretty good in the last 15 years at shutting down a lot of the more obvious ways of doing this. And I mean, I, you're much more, uh, you're much more attuned, uh, involved in this than I am, but it does seem to me that globalization opened lots of new avenues to tax evasion. And through a lot of creative lawmaking, they have managed, the, 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 the federal officials have, have managed to shut down a, an awful lot of that. I mean, things get better. They might not get perfect. But, you know, so after FATCA, after the United States put this huge penalty and said, give us information or else, the immediate response from the rest of the world is, who do you think you are? You can't regulate my banks, right? This is unilateral and extraterritorial. That was the first impression, first reaction. The second reaction was, we want to do it too, <laughs> right? So FATCA leads to something called CRS, the Common Reporting Standard, which is what all the rest of the world uses, and it's modeled on FATCA, it's somewhat different. But so every, all the countries in the world basically are on board with this idea that there should be automatic information exchange. So things get better, it becomes harder to avoid tax. It used to be, it was so easy, you were almost you know, a sucker for not doing it. Right? But now, you know, you, you have to go through more steps and people might feel more qualms if they have to go through a shell company as opposed to just inheriting an account from their grandparent or something like that and just not re continuing to not report it. Um, but while things get better, they don't get perfect. So FATCA applies to other countries, doesn't apply to us. Now we have domestic reporting of bank accounts, but U.S. banks don't report uh, to other countries, uh, they don't have the same reporting requirements to other countries, which means now the U.S. is a great place to have your secret <laughs> bank account if you're a foreigner. 
I ran into a friend um, uh, at a, an international tax conference, and he was from Switzerland. He was like, you're Flatka. This is unbelievable. We can't do anything anymore. <laughs> and he said, and what about you? You have, all the, you have all the secret accounts now. And my response was, well, we can FATCA you, but you can't FATCA us. <laughs> <laughs> that the size of the market matters. <laughs> and has CRS done anything to kind of counteract this in terms of its relation to the United States? So, I mean, now every, you know, so the other countries, we have uh, harmonization as to what uh, what countries want, which makes things easier for the banks. So there was a big concern for the banks too. We don't want to look just for Americans, and we don't want every country to impose upon us a different requirement so that we can't actually do our banking business. So the idea that everybody has nearly the same standards is very helpful. Fantastic. Well, um, kind of want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, it seems as if we're at a bit of a cultural inflection point. Larger and larger segments of our society seem to have taken up this cause of not letting people and corporations get away with hiding their money, uh, in part because of the events of the Panama Papers and in some part because of Bradley himself. And this has certainly been a rallying cry of the left, uh, as we've seen in the past elect in these Democratic nominations. Um, and that has been bolstered by the 2017 Tax Returns Act, where the top 5% of earners got a 2.2% increase in after-tax income, while the rest of us only got a 1.7% increase. So we still see these shadows of inequality, even in these tax reforms. But it's also manifesting as this distrust of major corporations. The corporate tax rate went from 35 to 21 percent, and it has been a rallying cry from Joe Biden to Kamala Harris to Bernie Sanders that the top corporations paid zero dollars in taxes in 2018 on something like 72 billion dollars in profit. And while we're not here exactly to discuss the economics and the morals of corporate tax code, that'll be for another uh, live episode. Uh, it speaks to kind of this pushback we've seen uh, on the ideas of corporations not paying their taxes. Uh, for example, we have the 2016 EU-Ireland um, tax fiasco, we can call it. That's, that's a fine term, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, in 2016, the EU Commission declared that Ireland had offered illegal tax benefits to Apple. Uh, after the end of a two-year investigation, they said Apple was required to pay $13 billion in back taxes to <laughs> Ireland. Uh, basically, Ireland had given them a sweetheart deal. Uh, their usual corporate tax rate was 12.5%. Apple, over the years, was paying anywhere between 0.05% and 3.7%, so well below their already incredibly uh, low rate. And not to mention, Apple has about $230 billion in cash and assets that, fails, uh, that they fail to repatriate to the United States in an effort to avoid taxes. So I just want to ask Professor Mason and uh, Dr. Thorndike, how has this trend morally kind of manifested itself in laws that have been created and movements uh, throughout the world and here at home? How are we reacting and why are we reacting in this way to corporations and people who 
just refuse to pay their taxes. <laughs> I think that corporations are the complicated an a part of this equation here, right? So, um, I mean, we can, the individual side of things is, is fraught, but easier to get our minds around. Rich people, less rich people, we don't like rich people, we want to make them less rich. You know, that's the wealth tax argument. Corporations are more complicated because it introduces this notion of competitiveness um, and uh, international competition um, and the pressures that corporations are under. Uh, it, 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 it introduces a whole new set of issues that really do complicate uh, the debate. Uh, corporations do operate under pressures that individuals do not. And so in the U.S., corporations were saddled with what was one of uh, the highest marginal tax rates prior to the 2017 in the world, either the highest or one of the highest marginal tax rates. Um, and, and there was a decent argument to be made that that was, uh, if not unsustainable, at least unhelpful or unwise, um, and that something needed to be done. But the problem is, what needs to be done? You know, um, it, uh, if, if, uh, if, if a given rate is unsustainable, it doesn't tell you what the rate should be. Uh, if, 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 you, is a, if a rate is 39%, should it be 35%, should it be 30, 29, 25, or 20? Uh, and, and that is a political argument that is not easily settled. Um, the corporate rate was cut dramatically in 2017. Um, that was just one part of a very complicated corporate tax reform that included all sorts of uh, international provisions designed to stop corporations from shifting a lot of their uh, profits overseas or at least to limit the, uh, their ability to shift profits around. Um, it was a complicated story. Politically speaking, it's even more complicated because the, the rate reductions are sort of headline numbers that capture public attention and that's why I think you see the uh, Democratic candidates uniformly proposing increases in the headline corporate tax rate. Uh, because American voters tend to think that corporations are not paying their fair share. They thought that when the rate was high, they think that now. Almost across the board, almost uh, you know, across time, uh, voters tend to say that corporations are not paying their fair share. Um, I, it, this is not an easy question to wrestle to the ground because corporations are, are not individuals and what constitutes fairness uh, in terms of what corporations are paying, it's, it's, it is enormously complicated, but it is, and it is politically very powerful. And, and I think, and so I'm gonna take a total buy on this. Like I, I, don't, I don't have, I don't even have an opinion on it. It's a, you can make a very decent argument in, in from 30,000 feet that there shouldn't be a tax on corporate profits. The corporate profits should be taxed entirely at the individual level. There are practical reasons why that's difficult or maybe impossible to do, but you could make a very principled argument, even if you're a, a progressive who believes very much in taxing the rich and giving to the poor, you could still make a very strong argument that all that money should be taxed at the individual level and not even try to do it at the corporate level. But I think as a matter of, of sheer politics, uh, it, it's, it's very hard to do, and, and the 2017 tax reform has, uh, has it, it tried to rationalize the system in this globalized world to some degree. Um, it had some, re in my view, it had some reasonable elements to it. It had some indefensible elements to it, but um, it's, we, we're not exactly, we haven't, we haven't achieved any grand, like, perfect solution. So, 
Um, yeah, Balthazar mentioned the reduction in the corporate tax rate from 35% um, to 21%, which sounds like a really big reduction, and it is. But that 21% ends up putting us much closer to all of our trading partners. So we had this way outlier rate. Um, and if you think about, if you were the person in the company in charge of tax planning, and you work for a multinational that's in many countries, your priority list of which countries tax to avoid is just a list of tax rates, right? I mean, and considering the base as well, right? But you wanna avoid first the place where you are taxed the highest. So not only was the US rate out of, it was important that the US rate was out of whack uh, compared to all of our trading partners. Um, so that rate had to come down, uh, and it did. The question, so, you know, Joe raised this difficult question of what's the right rate? Zero or more than zero or less than zero? Is that the right rate? Should we be subsidizing companies in order to create jobs? Many localities in this country think so. Um, another really difficult question to answer is where? Where are a corporation's profits? When you say that a corporation shifted its profits, that suggests that you have a notion of where the profits should have been in the first place. Are the profits where the employees are? Are they where the shareholders are? Are they where the company's managers are? Are they where the manufacturing is? Are they where the consumer is? And different countries may have different answers to those questions. And the, a lot of this under our current regime ends up being within the control of the taxpayer. So there's a lot of choice left open to the taxpayer about where they <coughs> declare their income. And if they have the choice, it should be no surprise that they choose low tax jurisdictions. And so that case with Apple and Ireland really was a where question, right? So Apple says, where are our profits? Says to the Commission of the, Euro of the European Union, where are our profits? Not Ireland, right? And what's Ireland's answer to where, where is Apple's pro uh, profit? Also not Ireland. The Commission says this, this income should have been declared somewhere. Since Apple declared it nowhere, and Ireland's before us, we'll make it Irish, right? <laughs> but that doesn't jibe with other countries, particular the, particularly the US conception of where the income is. So the United States actually tried to intervene as a party in that case to say, hey, commission, if you assign this income to Ireland, that means I don't get it, right? One of my favorite parts about that story is the Irish reaction. Okay. Uh, you would think that, all right, Apple owes you $13 billion, Ireland would be pretty happy about that, but they actually rejected it. They're very much on the side of Apple um, because the long-term effects of what that could mean for them as a kind of this is a moral gray area if they are technically are a tax haven. I think we can all agree they are. Um, but some countries don't seem to think so, including the United States. But I digress. Is that um, major U.S. corporations account for uh, an inordinate amount of Irish growth. Uh, they 
make up something like 10% of the labor force in Ireland. And so it, after some time and after some thought, it makes sense that they would try and reject this EU ruling and come down on the side of Apple and say, Apple, keep your money because the long-term profits that we have from you and from all these other transnational corporations who choose to kind of headquarters in Apple uh, is going to far outweigh that in the end. So it's, to me, a little comical and in a roundabout way makes sense, but at, at first glance, not always. Um, I mean, there were definitely shenanigans in that. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, no pun intended in that in the Apple case, right? So, like, you know, whether the income belongs to Ireland, right, which is the commission's position, is a separate question from whether Apple engaged in tax planning that was overly aggressive, right? So you could say, well, they should have declared their income somewhere. And, and, and we could all probably agree on that. Then the question, but then I wouldn't necessarily agree uh, that the right place was Ireland, so. Well, um, with that, thank you very much. I think we're gonna move into the question and answer portion of our uh, time here. So if anyone has something to say, we'll have a traveling mic. Um, Yes, you talked about the tax rate being, went from 35 to 21%, but what was the actual average tax rate that U.S. corporations paid uh, prior to the 2017 tax law change? It differs so much between uh, industries. I don't actually know the answer to that question uh, across industries. How about quite a bit lower? Um, and the question, but the, to back up again, it, the question is, do you think, does it matter? Like, what matters more? The marginal rate, which does apply to some, some companies in some industries, are getting pretty close to the marginal rate, even that they actually are paying close to the marginal rate. Um, and some industries are paying, you know, 5%. So some, some industries in which it's easy to shift a lot of their profits overseas and which have a lot of intellectual property which they can license to a subsidiary in a low tax jurisdiction, they're paying single digit rates. And some companies which have a very hard time doing that because all their business really is here and they don't have a lot of intellectual property, they're paying very close to the marginal rate. So uh, the one, that's one of the problems why corporate tax reform was so difficult to actually achieve was because the corporations were not all on the same page. The industries were not all on the same page. It was actually a minor, not a minor miracle, a huge miracle that they actually managed to get this over the line. And part of the way they did that was that they reduced the rate so much that everybody, almost everybody could get something out of it. And they greased the skids by bringing the small businesses in with a gigantic tax preference for small businesses, a 20% uh, uh, preference for uh, income for, um, for like partnership income. So I don't know the answer about what the overall effect uh, of average tax rate was, effective average tax rate was, but it was, it was quite a bit lower. Um, and, and what you generally hear people say is it was much it was closer to what our trading partners were paying, and, and perhaps that's so. But a lot of economists would say having the marginal, having the, the statutory marginal rate uh, at 35% was still destructive. So. Well, I have a question. Oh, oh sorry. Um, if the, the corporate tax, tax rate was 35%, how did Apple get away with not paying anything? Ooh. Through clever machinations <laughs> and taking advantages of differences 
between different countries' laws. That's really simple. The United States has a rule that defines when you're a tax resident, a corporate tax resident subject to tax by the United States on all of your income. Are you incorporated in the United States? The answer is yes. You're a US company, taxable on your worldwide income. Ireland has a different rule. Ireland's rule says you're, you're a taxable in Ireland, you're a tax resident in Ireland if you're managed and controlled in Ireland. So you incorporate in Ireland, you manage and control in the United States. What do you have? Stateless company. That's where you put your income. That part's obvious. Right? So if you're not subject to tax on your worldwide income anywhere in the world, right, that's a gap, a big one. Right? But then the second question is, okay, we all agree that's a gap. What do we do? What's the right solution to the gap? Depends whether you ask the United States or the European Commission. <laughs> Um, so first off, thanks so much for uh, shining some light on this because I think a lot of it got lost with the 2016 election and a lot that followed. And uh, my question actually kind of relates uh, to that to just give a little framing and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, my understanding is that there were a lot of non-US persons who were whose accounts and whatnot were revealed uh, through the Panama Papers. Um, particularly, I think y'all mentioned like uh, some Russians earlier on and then a lot of uh, maybe Middle Eastern countries. Um, and so I think I have heard a little bit about personal blowback for reporters and journalists who were involved in the work, assassinations and suspicious deaths and whatnot. Um, but then on a wider scale, as far as, uh, I wonder if you can speak to some of the international relations aspect. I uh, believe that the Magnitsky Act that has led to a lot of the sanctions against Russian oligarchs is related to uh, the outcome of the Panama Papers, but uh, I'm not 100% on that, so if you could speak to the impact on either individuals involved in the reporting and then also maybe the international relations and political aspect, I'd appreciate that. I don't know the yeah. answer, do you? Well, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, to be honest, when I was doing research on this, there was an incredible amount of information that came out a few months after the Panama Papers in 2016, and then it really, really tapered off, and there has not been a lot of updates since then, which was pretty interesting to me, um, and I don't know if that's because it was overshadowed by other events. Um, you are correct that there has been some kind of strange incidents involving some of these reporters. Um, and I couldn't find any resolutions to those strange in incidents. Um, hopefully we'll get some, but I think one of the things that frustrated me when I was just trying to do research on this was the fact that it really seemed to have, in a way, blown over, at least with the general public. Um, there are two people that are I'm sorry, there's one person um, that a trial is ongoing in the United States. Um, two people have pled guilty, and then one person that was indicted by the United States, um, who's a Panamanian citizen, is still at large. Um, so not a lot of 
US citizens, um, only one out of those four people were actually like a US citizen. Um, and they were one of the people that pled guilty. So um, for personal tax evasion. Um, yeah, I can't speak to the Panama Papers and international relations per se, but with the Bradley Birkenfield case in UBS, when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton went over to Switzerland and spoke with her Swiss counterpart, there are a number of reverberating effects and the intersections of uh, basically quid pro quos um, when she went over to try and recoup some of those names and bring them back to the U.S. soil. Uh, for example, the Swiss were actually our representatives in Iran at the time. So we didn't have an embassy there, and they ended up speaking on our behalf. So we had two uh, detainees in Guantanamo actually be released in Swiss territory, and the Iranians, Iranians sent over a, a US detainee. So there are these odd reverberations that you see uh, that come out of it. Uh, and the only reason we know about this uh, is because of another whistleblower, Bradley Manning. The dump of all of Secretary Clinton's emails revealed a lot of these shady kind of underground deals. Um, how much we can verify and the extent of them, we don't always know. Uh, some of it was lost in the personal servers, as per uh, Bradley's <laughs> book. Um, but yeah, there. To see the different ways in which uh, the actions of a bunch of Swiss bank accounts can manifest on the, the level of international relations is extremely interesting. Uh, and it creates this system of, of quid pro gross. Yeah, and I think w one other thing to add, we've talked um, a little bit about kind of the effect of globalization on all of this. Um, and that kind of comes into this question a little bit because you know, a lot of these countries that are tax havens are countries that, you know, are not great powers. Maybe they're developing countries. Um, whereas the countries that are doing the investigating are, you know, United States, the UK. Um, David Cameron, after this happened, you know, was pushing for, for example, like the British Virgin Islands to um, crack down on the use of them for a tax haven. Um, but then he was criticized because his own, his father was implicated in the Panama Papers. So Panama itself, again, you know, the United States was um, frustrated at Panama for letting this happen. Um, one of the co-founders, um, Fonseca, was actually an advisor to the Panamanian president for a long time. So it seemed like they, you know, kind of knew what was going on and, 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 were, and were letting it happen. But again, it, you know, the Panamanians accused the U.S. of, you know, hypocrisy because, um, you know, the U.S., as we've explained, you know, it's fairly easy to evade taxes here. Um, and so there was kind of a lot of blame going around and a, and, and a lot of these smaller countries, you know, were blaming larger countries of, of hypocrisy in, in their um, investigations. So I think it just kind of asks a broader question about, you know, the role of globalization um, in these investigations, so. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, given that uh, what Joe said earlier about uh, the, the bigger question of should we even tax corporations and uh, perhaps uh, focus more on individual taxation, uh, of course that's been a long-running debate in American history. Um, 
began in the, in the 30s in earnest, and Joe Peckman and the Kennedy and Johnson administrations suggested doing just that to, to a great extent. Um, and then also uh, assuming that uh, you know, other mitigating factors that we haven't even addressed tonight, such as uh, mobility of companies versus individuals and tax incidents, mm -hmm. you know, who actually pays the tax when it's imposed on a, on a corporation or a business. With all that in mind, um, have we thought hard enough uh, in this country about how to build a corporate tax code that focuses perhaps less on rate and more on how to avoid tax evasion of individuals? I mean, have we ever? I, mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's almost the answer to that. It's almost a rhetorical question, I'm, and I'm, I'm tempted to give a rhetorical answer. Never, <laughs> right? Like, there's never enough thought that goes into that, right? Um, no, I mean, we're always looking for a better way to, to, to tax individuals in a better way. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to tax people, I think, is the answer. I mean, corporations enjoy certain benefits as corporations, and we might want to tax them for that. But at the end of the day, we're taxing corporations as a way to get to the individuals, for the most part. Um, if we had a way, I mean, this is now I'm going to speak for my preference. If we had a way to tax all income at the individual level and there was no way for people to use corporations as a shield uh, to, uh, to hide their income and pile it up there, then I would be all for it. And, and that, would be, that seems to me like a great idea. It strikes me that there are all sorts of practical hurdles to making that a, a, a reality. But, um, but there's certainly there's plenty of room for improvement in the way that we're taxing individuals. And, and you know, there are so many different ways. We tax different kinds of income in so many different ways and at different rates. Uh, we have a long way to go. Um, and, and when we layer in the corporate tax and the, and the, the confusing way uh, the, the, in which that tax is borne by different groups, and you know it may, it's borne in some fashion by shareholders and the owners of capital and by labor and by consumers, and we don't know. You know we, have, we have ideas. And it's funny because those ideas haven't really changed a lot in, say, the last 80 years. We've been guessing that capital probably bears about 80% of it, but we don't really know. It's just an added level of confusion. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've just gotten to be a little bit of a fatalist about it and assume that we just we can't really extricate ourselves from the corporate tax entirely. So we just do the best we can with it, make it as reduce the burdens of it, the, the distortions of it as much as we can. Um, and then focus most of our attention on making the individual tax work as efficiently as it can. So that would be my preference. Well, thank you so much for coming, everyone. Uh, warm thank you to <laughs> Professor Mason and uh, Dr. Thorndike. I also wanted to thank the Miller Center so much for having us once again. They are always the most gracious hosts, uh, so thank you. Uh, also, my wonderful colleague Anna, Emmy Lockwood, our executive producer, Andy Caraluccio, our technical director who is responsible for all this movie magic you see. He is the best in the game. He's behind the scenes, but we love him to bits. Uh, Christian Young, Laura Fang, uh, Emma Ross, of course, our new host, and the whole Global Inquirer team in IRO. So thank you all so much for coming out. I hope you enjoyed, and as always, be sure to check out the Global Inquirer wherever you get your podcast. Thank you guys so much. That was awesome.